Lord Jesus Christ, we gather at your invitation. We gather by and through your spirit. And we humbly yet boldly ask once again for you to do what you delight to do. To pour out your spirit upon your people. Give us ears to hear you speak this day. Give us eyes to behold your glory this day. Give us hearts that are able to receive you this day. That we might be transformed into your image for the glory of your name. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you. Please. If you know me well, you know that I love truisms, uh, and I use this one often. Uh, there is this adage that there are only two groups of people in the world. Only two groups of people in the world. Those who believe there are only two groups and those who do not. Right. Um, we laugh because it's funny, but we also laugh because it's true. It's true. That's why it becomes a truism. Uh, it seems that down through the ages, all great teachers, and especially all great moral teachers, uh, knew that there was some foundational thing, some truth beyond all other truths uh, that truly needed to be grasped, and if not grasped, would divide the hearers. Those who received the truth and built their life on it, and those who did not. Only two groups of people. The scriptures are sort of full of that kind of teaching. Uh, and it sort of just jumped off the page to me this week. I hope it jumped off the page to you. That we have three such texts this morning. I would argue we have four, but I'm not only going to deal with three. But three texts who scream this to us. That there is absolutely something fundamental that you and I need to grasp because our lives depend on it. What is it that they want us to hear today? Well, let's start with Psalm 1. That's where it begins. It's the foundational psalm uh, of the day. It's the foundational psalm of the Psalter. Uh, and again, we have two groups of people, those who are blessed and those who are not. And the psalmist starts off by describing uh, the blessed in negative terms. He says, he is, not, he is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And the reason he does not do those things, does not walk in those ways, is because he has a different, what I would call, animating principle in his life. And he goes on to describe that. He says, no, but his delight, the blessed one, his delight 
is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight, not just his affirmation, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the animating force of his life. And that is what shapes his way of life, his way of life that flows in a different way from the scoffers and the sinners and the wicked. And over time develops a quality of life. Right? An animating force produces a way. That way, when lived, produces a quality of life. And metaphorically, it's like a tree. A tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. What a glorious image. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted where it needs to be planted and doing what it was created to do, barren fruit. In all he does, he prospers. That's the statement, statement of fact, according to the Sultan. Now, that's the status of the life of the blessed one now, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. But it's also, it seems, tied into his destiny. He says, unlike the wicked, who are like chaff, the blessed will stand in the judgment. And unlike <coughs> sinners, the blessed will find themselves as members of the congregation of the righteous. There's the end. There's the telos of the story. For ultimately, he says, the Lord knows only one way. The Lord only knows the way of the righteous. So there's the foundational text and it says to us that to find our way into a blessed state, we need to have our delight in the law of the Lord. That's the key, according to the psalmist. Our delight must come to be in the law of the Lord. Well, that's the psalm. Uh, flip ahead to Jeremiah. Uh, this wonderful text, a challenging text. Uh, from chapter 17 of Jeremiah. Uh, and he talks about the blessed and the cursed. Now, interesting enough, he is addressing these two groups within the community of faith. Right? This is Israel that he's talking to, Judah, to be more specific. And he's addressing a community of faith who is confronting a crisis in life. They are facing the annihilation of their country by the Babylonians. That's the crisis that precipitates uh, this dialogue, this critique, because that crisis has produced two different responses. He says this, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. There is one group's response to the crisis facing their nation. Trusting in man, making flesh his strength, 
hearts turning away from the Lord. That's contrasted to the man who is blessed. The blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Who in the moment of crisis discovers that his animating force in life is his covenantal relationship with his God. Not so with the cursed. They discovered in the moment of crisis that their trust is not in their Lord. It is in themselves. It is in what they can see, what they can feel. Uh, it is expressed in finding alliances with Egypt and others. Their strength is in the Lord, or not in the Lord, it's in the flesh. And that seems to me is what the text is trying to say. In the moment of crisis, what truly animates us comes to the fore. That's what happens in crisis. We may think we are trusting in one thing and discover in that moment we're not. That seems to be the thrust of Jeremiah. Going on to Luke chapter 6. Uh, again, Jesus speaks about two groups, those who are blessed and those who are not, those who have woes um, given to them. And he describes them again uh, in surprising kind of ways. He says, those who are blessed include those who are poor, in contrast to those who are rich. Those who are hungry, in contrast to those who are full. Those who weep, in contrast with those who laugh. Then he goes on to add one more contrasting pair, which reveals again the fundamental categorical difference. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, rather than speaking well of you. That's a pretty categorical statement, but it's not the categorical statement. They are not uh, to be spoken of, treated like that in and of themselves, but on account of the Son of Man. There's the categorical difference. That's the key thing, Jesus says, that has changed everything. Uh, the fundamental divine. I am present. I am the crisis, how do you respond? Those who respond to me, even though they be poor, even though they be um, sick, even though they be uh, weeping, and those who are hungry, they will be blessed. You do not respond, you will not. So again, Jeremiah speaks of our hearts being revealed by crisis. Jesus says, guess what? I am the crisis. Right? Deal with it. I have come. Those are three texts, so they build on one another. What are we to do with them? How are you and I to understand these three together so that we might actually benefit from 
what they say? That's the question. Let me start by saying one thing categorically and then coming back to that question. Um, all three share something in common. And what they share is this. The only reason you and I have a hope of being counted among the blessed, the only reason that we have a choice to be made is because of the gracious intervention of God. All three texts are founded upon that intervention. Apart from it, we are not blessed. Apart from it, we cannot be blessed. With it, the possibility exists. If God had not intervened in calling Abraham, if God had not intervened in redeeming his people through the Exodus, if God had not been gracious to give us his law, if God had not sent his son in human form to be the atonement for sin, we have no hope of being counted among the blessed. But because God has intervened, we do. All three texts share that foundational reality. We have a chance to hear. We have a chance to respond. We have a chance to participate in blessings. So how do we do that? Well, three things, starting from the first and going to the last. From the psalm, we need to get into our head that the one thing above all other things that you and I need to do to be counted among the blessed is to come to delight in the law of the Lord. That's it to delight in it, not just to say acquiesce to it, not even to try to do it well, to delight in it, because we delight in the one who gave it to us. We see the beauty in this. We see the wonder of it. We are knowing that this is our call. We get a chance to live it, to delight in the law of the Lord is at the core of living the blessed life. We need to remember that, says the psalmist. But we need to understand with Jeremiah why we struggle to delight in it. And we struggle to delight in it, he says, is because our hearts turn away from the Lord. Our hearts turn away from the one who gives us this law, who shares it with us. And Jeremiah goes on to say this about why that is true, why our hearts turn away from the Lord. He says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's his diagnosis of the fallen humanity. 
our heart is deceitful because it's already been deceived. And because it is, has been deceived and has become deceitful, it is sick beyond repair. There's the dilemma. He goes, who can understand it? And then he answers his own question by saying this. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways the fruit of his deeds. In the midst of crisis, our true hearts where they are allied, where they, what they delight in, is revealed. Revealed not only to us, but the Lord who searches the heart and who tests the mind. How does that make you feel? I won't ask you the answer, but I'm going to ask you in, in your heart, how do you feel? How do you feel that the Lord who made you is searching your heart? Testing your mind. Does that fill you with despair? Or with hope? I think it all depends on how much of the lie that you have are taken in. It should fill us with hope. Great hope. And that, I take, comes from our gospel again today. Luke chapter 6. Before Jesus speaks his blessings and his woes, this is what Luke says happened. He had been up on the mountain all night in prayer. He had just chosen his twelve. And then he comes down. He came down with his disciples and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. And the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, they came from all over. And this is what Luke says, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. All the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. What an entry point to blessed are those. (laughs) That's the context. Now, I used to think that those were two very separate things. Some all came to hear him. Some came to be healed by him. I've since come to say, no, no, no. no. They are absolutely interconnected things. All of us come to hear him. All of us need to be healed by him. In fact, we need to be healed by him before we can hear him. 
Our hearts that are sick need to be cured if we are to hear what he is to say. And that's the context of his blessings and his woes. We can come to hear him because we can come to be healed by him in order that we can hear him. That's the wonder of the gospel. You see, the, way, the reason our hearts are deceived is because we have been deceived by the enemy of our life and the enemy of our creator. He has deceived us into attaching our hearts to something other than and lesser than our Lord. And by through that attachment, he has crushed us. He has corrupted us. He has made our hearts sick unto death. And that needs to be healed. But that's exactly why Jesus has come. That's exactly why he is the crisis. Because he comes in this intervention of the creator in and for his creation to do exactly that. To overwhelm the deceiver. To vanquish him. But to do it in such a way that those who have been captured by him, corrupted by him, might be healed of that corruption and freed from that enslavement. And that is exactly what he comes to do. So that we can hear him and come to delight in what he says. The bottom line lesson is, we need not fear the one who searches the heart. We do fear, but that's part of the deception. That's the remnant of the lie. I'll say it again. You need not fear the one who searches your heart. This is the one who made your heart. This is the one who alone can heal your heart. And he has come to do so that you might hear him speak. And in and through that hearing delights in what you hear. <laughs> to delight in the law of the Lord and to enjoy the state of blessedness. Do not fear the one who searches the heart. Open your heart in spite of your fear. Let him heal so that you can heal. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.